Check your flashlight and hold your pillows close. It's time for architecture, coffee, and ink. Hello, this is Hollywood C, and you're listening to Architecture, Coffee, and Ink, a podcast dedicated to introducing concepts, detailing out designs, and tackling the architecture you might not realize the meaning behind. I'm your hostess, and I'm here today to start introducing you to the designs that make you wonder why. So I ask you to brew your coffee, grab your sketchbook and pen, and let's begin. Welcome to my Halloween special, where things are going to be a little different today. A quick trigger warning, this is a scary stories episode, so people's death and the paranormal will be discussed. If this bothers you or triggers you in any way, please see my normal episodes where it's just our architecture. While I won't go into graphic details at any point, I want to make sure that everyone is comfortable and has an enjoyable time. My family has a long history of oral traditions on both sides, so I'm going to lean on my ancestors a little today when the veil between worlds is thinnest to bring you stories of a few buildings and projects. Now, this wouldn't be an architecture podcast without discussing the designs as well. So, I ask you to pull up a seat, grab a log, and let your mind wander through the long corridors and the sweeping shadows as we discuss tales of horror. Now, what do you do if you're stuck in a murder hotel with a serial killer? Herman Webster Mudkit was born on May 15, 1861 to an extremely notable family of immigrants from England. A middle child, he achieved a notable success early on, marrying at 16 and going in and out of a string of universities, all until his wife finally tired of his violent tendencies left him. Afterwards, he started to move around. And while he was moving around, he was quickly accused of being seen with a missing child, the first in a string of city hopping, missing people, and mysterious death. With each town and each mystery, he left quicker and quicker and quicker, pausing only for scams and mysteries, for cons and insurance fraud, until he finally found his way to Chicago, underneath a name you were all 
much more familiar with. Dr. H. H. Holmes. Just recently, a new documentary was released that I have not yet seen. Detailing the life of Dr. Henry Howard Holmes. But for us, our story begins in August 1886 when Holmes reaches Chicago, Illinois, and purchases a cold, empty lot and begins to construct his castle. Construction began in 1887 for a two-story building designed by Etna Iron and Steel. He shortchanged the architects and through a series of complicated events, he eventually began constructing a third floor with the intention of creating a hotel for the World Fair. Now, many of us architects know that the World Fair happened in Chicago in 1893 from May through October and represented the happiness and success. This World Fair was the 400th year anniversary of Columbus and was called the Columbus Fair or the Chicago Columbus Fair, depending upon how you may have heard about it. However, surrounding a glistening pool, the smell of food, and the delighted screams of the children running about would only faintly surround those who walked along the banks of the pool with the smell of the water enhancing the white stucco and the ornate buildings representing a future that gleams in a hopeful, welcoming hue. The awe everyone must have felt as the statue centered at the end of the pool rose up and was only eclipsed by the looming Ferris wheel in the distance. And not too far away, at a pleasantly compact building, with beautiful sides of windows and awnings stretching, reaching to welcome you into shopping and, and a drugstore where you could buy snacks to tide you over as you experience the fair. It's there that you can sit and experience the Chicago sun. But don't be fooled by this charming facade. The whispers are all around you as you sit. What lurks beneath is more horrifying than anything anyone walking by could have ever imagined. Filled with a hundred rooms, you could travel the expense of the building from the staircases up into the narrow passageway above. With the first floor being shops and retail, surely it would be safe to move up to follow the staircases. After all, you're only curious. But when you reach the end, often there is nothing. Perhaps just an empty room, which would puzzle you. Wasn't wasn't there supposed to be a window? What what happened to the base? Now, nothing more than walls surround you right now. But hey, that, that's fine. 
it's probably you're not too far away from everybody. You'll just turn around, right? But it takes you a moment, disoriented as you are, and you waited too long, and the floor would slide out beneath you. And oftentimes, the last thing you would see would be that expanse of wall just going on and on and on. The entire complex was rumored to be littered with gas chambers, bogus stairways, and trap doors, a lot like that Winchester house. Looking at a few plans of the building, it is labeled with things like waiting rooms and rooms that often only have one entrance. False walls and odd shapes would have confused anyone who entered, and the narrow hallways would have allowed homes complete control. Places were marked for acid, and most chilling for me was that one of those waiting rooms and receptions would have windows to the outside. How many people walked along, unknowing of those banging on the glass above? Altogether, it's not an, it is unknown how many people lost their lives to homes. Before his execution, he often claimed walking victims, people he said he killed but were still roaming the earth. So an exact number of deaths is unknown. However, altogether, the estimate is anywhere from nine to 200 plus people. The truth is he was also a scammer and a con artist and a fraud, often faking deaths and making false claims and talking his victims into it. And once he was driven out of Chicago, he attempted to make another hotel, one never completed, and also having a mysterious issue with the architect that he had to finish the building himself. However, supposedly this building never saw any victims. I bring this up not to glorify the killer, but to remember those whose lives were lost, whose stories may never be told. I met someone in college who shared that according to family lore, one of her family was a potential victim. However, they were never able to confirm it or anything about it other than that she was lost at the World Fair Park separated from her family and seeking shelter. And wouldn't a pharmacy feel safe? So I offer this word of warning. Don't be too dazzled by the lights and the awe because dark always follows closely behind where the light cannot reach. A clash between Greek revival and federal style, this building's cheerful promenade hides the history of Carton, a house in Franklin, Tennessee. It was built by slaves and lies adjacent to the McGavick 
Confederate cemetery. The Carton House was built in 1826 and was the home of Randall McGavick. Over the years and over time, it actually hosted a series of notable visitors. Uh, Nashville's elite, or a who's who of Tennessee. The original building itself was crafted in the federal style with the Greek Revival porch, a later addition. Altogether, the house has 11 rooms with square ionic columns out front. The house over the years has fallen into disrepair before it was restored by the Carton Association, who did their best to restore the house to the way it would have been in its prime. Down to trying to find or replicate the wallpaper that would have been used during the renovations by John McGavick, the son of the former Nashville mayor who built the property. Nowadays, you can walk up, take your dog for a little ride through, over through Franklin, Tennessee, and walk the property ground. The house itself is beautifully backset on a lawn with a white fence in front and the columns of the house peeking out with the, ch with the chimneys jutting out on each side. Looking at the ionic columns in the back, you can see where they've renoed the pathway with the white siding and the green shutters peeking on the porch. You can also see the beautiful windows, four on each side of the door, with the door lining perfectly up with that center walkway. And through these large windows, you can catch just glimpses of the interiors. All in all, in a very scenic and ionic look, iconic look. Along the side, you can capture images of the brick and the red that very different from that white backside. But the beauty of the brick cannot be understated. And you can see the age and the history of the building through those bricks. The combination of the porch and the brick is actually a really nice set of lines. And if you look on the blog, I'll have a couple photos of them. Additionally, you can see this beautiful walkway with trellis where in the summertime, the flowers and the plants will bloom and cascade over, creating a beautiful walkway for you to walk through. However, the property of the former Nashville mayor and it has a stronger history than 
what I've just described. It is not the wealthy elite of Nashville that our story centers around. Instead, it is the bloody history of the Battle of Franklin where our story begins. Considered to be one of the worst battles of the Civil War, purely because of the amount of people killed per hour. It is an extremely short time, the entire battle lasting roughly or barely five hours. Altogether, of the 63,000 troops, there were roughly 8,578 casualties, though the Carton website lists almost an extra 1,000 deaths. Wikipedia and a few other sources dispute this number further, stating some lower, some higher, depending upon whether they're considering the deaths immediately or up to a certain point. However, it's the Carton's history with this battle that is the center of our story. The Carton became a makeshift hospital with bodies running over and spilling into the yard as the house itself failed to contain all those who needed help. A quote directly from the Carton website. Run by the Battle of Franklin Trust is taken from one of the staff and says the wounded in hundreds were brought to the house during the battle and all the night after. And when the noble old house could hold no more, the yard was appropriated until the wounded and dead filled that. Eventually, they ended up donating part of the property and creating the Confederate cemetery. And some of those who lost their lives in the battle and lost their lives at the house were moved there as a form of memorial. However, the part that I remember the most from being in the house was the feeling of the un unease, not on the property itself, but when you reach a room and the discolored floor finally comes into focus and it hits you all at once, what you're looking at is the stains of blood forever tainting the floorboards. Then rushing, you step outside to the porch and it offers no relief as that feeling crawls after you, the swimming walls pressing in, crying with its loss. You can feel the walls crawling and the feeling of something, something reaching, reaching into the soles of your feet and trying to claw its way up. I am not alone in this. A family friend also came to the property and talked about how when they were on a tour of the property, they decided to speak to the guy just a moment after the tour was continuing and everybody else had left. And an orb floated across the room, visible to their naked eye. They described how their chest tightened as both they and the tour guide fell silent. 
stunned in disbelief, it wasn't until the orb exited that they finally jolted and rushed from the room to the next part of the tour, pretending nothing happened towards the porch. When they saw a man standing next to a woman seated on the porch, they were confused. They thought they were the last people in the house, and they turned to the guide to ask if any recreations, recreations were taking place. But upon seeing the guide realize the guide's face had drained of all its color. And our friend turned back to the porch just in time to see both figures disappear. I guess the tour was so good you could just die to be on it. Now, finally, what do you do when you need a Ouija board to consult your interior designer or a haunting design? Now, this last story is more of a paranormal funny. Again, this story comes to me from my family. Now, a member of my family had purchased a house with a previous ex-husband. When purchasing the home, she noticed that there were quite a few things she would like to change, as anybody does when they're buying a new home. You know, you, you don't buy the home to see the exact what is there, but you buy it with the intention of seeing what it could be, what it could be for you, your family, how you can decorate it and change it to suit your needs. Now, when she was purchasing the home, she noticed that there were a few things that she would like to change, including a very distinctive blue dining room. The type of blue that kind of stuns you into disbelief, that kind of, I can deal with it for the moment, but it's going to have to change blue. Now, when they were first moving in, as many people do, you have to plan how you will tackle designing your house. Break down your renovations over time so you're not overwhelmed with everything. So, at first, following their plans, they put up all their decorations, including a very modern painting. A painting of a woman in red lipstick. Now, what exactly this means, I don't know. As the story unfolds, you'll understand why I have never actually seen this painting before. Unfortunately, the woman in red lipstick seems to quickly be a problem. So, when my family member first noticed something was wrong was because she heard footsteps down the hall when she was home alone. Next, she would hear the ring of an unplugged rotary phone. 
to the point where the phone eventually had to be thrown into a closet to at least dull the ringing. And then the painting, that red lipstick woman painting. It started off small, she said, just slowly being found face down. Not, not damaged at first, just laid down perfectly, nicely with the face down. Then it escalated. It started being found face down further away and further away. Not like it had just been dropped, but like it had been picked up. Then finally, it was found on the table, which wouldn't have been a problem, right? You know, things fall. If it weren't for the fact it had to be lifted up over a plant and taken down off the wall. But all that was fine. She could handle a little bit of bumps and bruises and hey, maybe, maybe her husband's forgetful. But then she painted over the blue in the dining room. Picture this layout for just a moment where a living room is adjacent to the dining room and a hallway and guest room remain off to the side and above you stretches the expanse of the bedroom. But center of all of this is that blue dining room. Well, after they painted the dining room, things started escalating. She started to notice more footsteps, more slamming doors when she was alone, and worst of all, large items near her and her alone started to shake and rattle. One evening, she was sitting down reading on the couch and her ex-husband walked into the room only to shout as the coat rack behind her and only the coat rack started to shake and rattle and wobble about and move in a way it couldn't have if it was just naturally falling apart or badly made. And it all cultivated up to the point where she finally gave in painted the dining room back that god-awful shade of blue and yelled to the unknown entity that she could have that blue dining room, but it was her house. And she, my family member, wasn't going anywhere. And in response, all she could hear was the shuffling of objects, the sound of footsteps walking away, and a door slamming. After that, the home went quiet as long as she didn't try to move any furniture or redecorate beyond what it was at the time of the argument. Any other attempts would result in the furniture moving or the chairs being flipped over until one day, finally, she received a call from the previous owner. Apparently, that old rotary dial phone forgotten in the closet, ringing into the quiet, was still incurring charges. So they asked to come and get it. 
Of course, she agreed. And when the previous owners arrived, she couldn't help but ask, is, is this place haunted? At which time the old owner confirmed that yes, it was. And it was his mother. And immediately asked her, you didn't paint the little dining room, did you? Apparently, it was his mother's self-claimed design enthusiast favorite room in the house. And that she had to approve all changes that happened on the property. Now, since the story has happened, the house has been sold and has been sold multiple times. Each time, they have been required disclaimer that the house is haunted and they have to include the clause that the blue dining room has to remain behind. You can change anything else in that house, but don't change the color of the wall. Of course, after hearing this story, my only question is, how does a rotary dial phone unplugged from the wall still make enough calls to get a bill? Thank you once again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this special episode. A quick call to action. Please rate and review. Share with your friends, your neighbors, and your family or your professor, whoever you think needs some architecture in their life. We again have a Facebook page and a private group, both of which are under the same name, Architecture, Coffee, and Ink. The answer to the question, who the host is, is Hollywood, just like the city. And the second question is just your opinion. And I might just use it as a recommendation for a show with a little shout out. If you want to either be featured or have a case study suggestion, or perhaps just want to share a story of your favorite designer experience. You can either find me at Architecture Coffee and Ink, the website is architectureinc.design.blog, or my Twitter is at Hollywood Conrad and Insta is Hollywood.conrad, because I love to make everything a little bit more complicated. Everything will be linked in the show notes, including my incredibly long URL. You can also email me at architecturecoffeeanding at gmail.com, all spelled out without the ampersands or commas. The theme song is by me and GarageBand, and the other music is also from me and GarageBand. And everything is credited along with the sources on the blog. Just remember, today is a double feature, so make sure you check out episode five, all, uh, all roads lead to the rumor bus that I am actually releasing at the same time. But either way, happy Halloween, All Saints Day, All Souls Day, Guy Fox Night, Mischief Night, Sawin, El Dia de los Muertos, or whichever holiday you celebrate. And as always, may your coffee mugs be full and your ink wells never run dry. Grab your candy corn 
and your candy cap candy apples. Happy Halloween, everyone. <laughs>